Welcome to the Immigrant Stories Program. I'm your host, Walter Gallagher, and my interview today is with Lori Loeb. Lori's been many things in her life, a percussionist, a silversmith, a ski instructor, cocktail waitress, carpenter, landscaper, newspaper reporter, ESL teacher, yoga instructor, music therapist, a business owner, and a community organizer. It's through her role as a community organizer that she helped found the Carbondale Council on the Arts, and the Carbondale Mountain Fair that now draws over 20,000 people each summer. I sat down with Lori recently at her kitchen table to talk about her life in the valley and what's next. Lori Loeb, thanks for sitting down with me for this interview. I really appreciate your time. I'd like to start by asking you how you came to the valley. What were the circumstances that brought you here? I originally came to play in the Aspen Music Festival and school while I was still in high school. Um, I have been playing percussion since I was 12 years old. I'm not a, just a hippie thunder drummer like a lot of people see me. Um, and uh, I had been playing in a repertory orchestra in New York City and doing monthly Carnegie Hall concerts and weekly uh, radio broadcasts of rehearsals. And uh, I was on a fast track to become a symphonic percussionist. And the Aspen Music School, of course, uh, you know, has a great reputation. And so I came out here to that in the summer, as I said, while I was still in high school. And, of course, like everybody, I fell in love with the place. And as a child, at the age of 12, I had been in the Italian Alps and uh, was totally enthralled with them. And I arrived in Aspen at night, so I couldn't really see my surroundings. And when I woke up the next morning and looked out my window, it was like, oh, my God, I'm... I'm back in Cortina d'Ampezzo, and, <laughs> and that was it. And then um, after junior year in college, I uh, dropped out of school and moved here. So that was um, 61, I moved to Aspen, and I was up Valley all during the 60s. And then I could see, from around the mid-60s on, I could see the uh, changes that lay ahead, and... Um, decided I didn't really want to stay in Aspen. And I looked all over uh, other places, um, other ski areas, but for various reasons chose not to go to them and uh, decided that I wanted to stay in proximity to Aspen because of the cultural activity. And Carbondale didn't have much going on, and, and it was very affordable, and this is where I landed. People would say to me up valley, what the heck are you going to do in Carbondale? And I kind of wondered myself, but I figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> you did indeed. So describe, describe uh, what Aspen was like first, and then um, we'll get to Carbondale. But what, what was your first impression when you came in, what, 1958? 58, yeah. No, no, 
It was earlier than that. I actually, I think I came in '57 the first time. Yeah, um, Aspen had a year-round population of about I don't know 700 people, and uh, the highway was the only paved road. There were dogs sleeping in potholes in the streets, and uh, you know maybe one car parked on a block, and it was very laid back and wonderful. And, you know, there were a lot of dropouts, social dropouts there. And um, people came there to live however they chose to live. And it it was a very eclectic group of people. Who are some of the dropouts that you remember? Were there particular characters or was it oh yeah well ralph jackson (laughs) he was one of the one of the big characters and um oh well there there were a lot of very interesting people and then there were uh you know the the people who started the ski industry who were there and you know a bunch of uh, scandinavians and europeans um and we had hungarian refugees and uh just it was just a really interesting, interesting place. And, there, and it wasn't a pretentious place at all. What were the changes that you saw that made you sort of decide to move on down? Um, they started building condos. And what that represented was absentee ownership. And that really changed the face of, of the town. Um, there were people who were you know, owning properties there and trying to uh, control the way the real residents lived. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Also, they started to pave the streets, and I lived on a corner, and they were going to slap a huge pavement assessment onto me. They started to uh, put a leash law in effect, and these were... Mm-hmm. These were right. the kind of things that um, I just didn't care for. <laughs> so then you, so you moved to Carbondale, and what did you find when you came here? It was 1970. Well, well, I I, I bought my place in '69. Um, Wally DeBeck had three houses in a row for sale here, and he was asking fifteen thousand dollars for all three of them, and. Uh, I offered him 10, thinking he'd come back, you know, with a counter offer. And uh, he said, Take them. <laughs> <laughs> and he financed them for me. One, this one that I currently live in, uh, had been abandoned for five years, was condemned and totally uninhabitable. The other two had very leaky roofs and bad plumbing and bad wiring and uh, were rented for, oh, I can't even remember how much, but very, very low rentals. And uh, the town had 600 people and no paved roads at all. And it was, you know, the population were primarily coal miners, ranchers, and a few people who worked, you know, for the schools or the forest service or something like that. It was a very low-key town. There wasn't much going on. There was um, one restaurant, T. Joe's, uh, which was 
where European Antiques is on Main Street now, and then what's next door to, to European Antiques now, which is a town restaurant, was an auto mechanics shop. Mm. And, you know, some of the storefronts on Main Street were boarded up. The library was in the west end of the Dinkle Building in what's now um, a florist shop, and it had the largest circulation of any library on the western slope. And yeah. it was just in a little store. Uh, libraries were hard to come by in those <laughs> days. I do remember that, having grown up in Glenwood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Immigrant Stories Program. I'm your host, Walter Gallagher, and my interview today is with Lori Loeb. Lori's describing her life in Carbondale when she arrived in 1969. So did you know what you were going to do when you, when you came to Carbondale? When you looked around? No. <laughs> no. Just took a no. stab in the dark. Um, I, well, I had my work cut out for me with these houses. I mean, I had to, I had to renovate one of them to live in it. Uh, and then I, I wanted to ski, and I really couldn't afford to ski, so I uh, started teaching skiing up at Sunlight. And sunlight seemed like an anthill, you know, compared to Ajax, where I'd been skiing, you know, every day except maybe five or six a season. Um, and then I also, I needed a little spending money, so I uh, went to work as a cocktail waitress at, at uh, Buffalo Valley initially, where I got sent home from my first night at work for not having hose on my legs <laughs> or makeup on my face. But we worked that out. <laughs> uh, yeah, how did, you, how did you do that? How did you work it out? Well, I, I was wearing, my first night at work, I was wearing what I had been wearing for my interview and got hired in, and I thought it was perfectly acceptable, but the bartender didn't. And uh, I just told him, you know, I'm, I'm clean. I'm going to do my job well. And this is who I am. I don't wear makeup. I'm not going to wear makeup. What was it like in 1970 in Carbondale? The war, the Vietnam War was winding down. And there were people moving to this area, yourself and others. So as I remember, having grown up in Glenwood, there was a, a bit of a conflict between the hippies and... Oh, Yeah. Um, Well, at first, you know, I I didn't really know anything about coal mining culture, and uh, I would go to the post office. We didn't have, you know, home mail delivery then, and I'd go to the post office every day, and I'd see guys with black eyeliner on, looked to me like mascara, and I thought to myself, good Lord, what kind of a weird cult is this? (laughs) Not having a clue that this was coal dust on the base of their eyelashes and they couldn't get it off. Um, the the Black Nugget was in full swing and that's where the miners hung out. And because uh, rents were very cheap here, some artists started moving in and a few people started moving down Valley uh, from Aspen. Uh, Roy Rickus moved down soon after me, you know, with his turban and, and, uh, 
you know, we just started seeing more <laughs> more diversified population here. And there were some problems, um, be, you know, between the so-called hippies and the miners and the ranchers. But we managed to work those things out. And I think one of the things uh, that was instrumental in that was um, the beginning of Mountain Fair. That was... Uh, a way to bring diversified population together in a common on on common grounds of of the arts. Really, so it it, it played a role. I'm, I'm I've often wondered how that how that tension was was diffused in Carbondale and how people the the residents finally came to accept folks. Well, you know, a lot of. Um, problems like that are stem from ignorance and lack of understanding. It's like when the Latinos first came, um, you know, there was a communication barrier. And so people, people are afraid of the unknown. And that's what it was like, uh, back in the early, in the early seventies. Uh, you know, once people got to, to know each other and to work together side by side, you know, like on the on Mountain Fair, um, you know, then people began to realize we're we're all pretty much the same. We might look a little different, but you know, inside we've got the same needs. We're human beings, and uh, and I think we we developed you know some mutual respect. You know, in some cases, just tolerance, but in in, in many <laughs> tolerance cases, is good. <laughs> at least for a starter, yeah. Yeah. And and then, you know, after the first couple of years of Mountain Fair, um, we we started the the Arts Council, and I was very uh, adamant about involving various segments of the community in that. And so when I formed a board for the for CCAH, um, I got somebody from the schools, uh, somebody from the clergy, um, Jean Hulgate, who was the town clerk. I got her to be the co-signer on the bank account so that there would be the credibility of those people who were already known here. And that, that worked too. Well, so you, uh, a community organizer of sorts and respecting the different segments of the community and making an effort to involve them mm -hmm. yeah. is a good place to start. Yeah, yeah. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Immigrant Stories Program. I'm your host, Walter Gallagher, and my interview today is with Lori Loeb. Lori's talking about the early days of organizing the, the mountain fair. So how did you engage people in, in Mountain Fair? Were there, was there resistance? I mean, you had to, first of all, describe and, and educate people about what it, what it was. Well, originally, the State Council on Arts and Humanities uh, came to Carbondale um, wanting to, to us to host uh, a Chautauqua festival. And they went to the college and got somebody from the college to be the organizer. And she had she was in an auto accident a couple of weeks before the fair was scheduled and couldn't continue. And George Stricker, who was working 
for the college at the time approached me because I had put together um, some crafts fairs up in Aspen. I had been a silversmith when I was up there. And um, so he knew that and came to me to see if I would do it. And so on two weeks' notice, we managed to put together the first fair. And we decided, you know, why should we just um, take a look at the work of artists who they're bringing in from outside? We've got some of our own. At the time, we had a mayor, um, Charlie Kelly, who was a bronze sculptor. And we had a number of different artists and weavers, potters, etc., who had already moved down here. So um, we decided let's showcase our own artists uh, as well as getting some exposure to what's going on in the outside world. And so, um, and then, you know, we thought, okay, we'll get the, the Boy Scouts involved. They were painting rocks and making seed necklaces. And uh, the Rebecca's were doing their quilting. And again, it was a, there was a, an, exclu an inclusive attitude. Uh, you know, let's come together and celebrate what we've got. Well, and, and Potato Days was a, was a rich tradition. So oh, yeah. people had, had things and they could see how this would, would uh, be another sort of way to celebrate a festival. Right. And, and, you know, because of Potato Days and because this was a small, um, you know, agricultural community, there was um, a tradition of volunteerism. It's always been very strong here. Sopris Park was built by volunteers. And so in the early years of Mountain Fair, I mean, we had, we had like 500 volunteers. Um, we, wanted, we wanted to block off Went Boulevard, and Vern Susi was the police chief at the time, and he had just come to town, and he said, oh, no way, you know, you'd have to have people directing traffic, and they'd need training. I said, tell me how many you want, I'll get them, and I called him up a couple of days later. I said, okay, you know, when do you want to train us? And so we, we had a lot of volunteers, and, you know, there wasn't a permanent bandstand, and the the... Farm Co-op would provide a flatbed truck, and Flogus uh, Sawmill would um, provide the siding to build a structure, and we built a structure every year and then tore it down. And people built their their booths. There were none of these little fancy pop-up <laughs> tents then. So there it was, was a do-it-yourself culture. Oh, uh, yeah, know? yeah. But you said you had five. How did you how did you uh, marshal 500 volunteers? That's amazing in the early days of the, the mountain fair. Well, I, you know, that was probably after a couple of years. Um, I, I guess my enthusiasm was infectious. <laughs> yeah. When I believe in something, you know, I can, I can sell the idea. Yeah, I would say. And, um, you know, and I got a lot of people involved in the decision-making. So then they all would have a sense of ownership and that... Um, you know, translates into a sense of pride for what's happening. You know, let's make this work. So it was never yours; it was ours. It was which always is an important, ours. Yeah. important place to yeah. start. You know, you need somebody, you know, like an umbrella to oversee all the different pieces, but um, but you need so many to make things really happen. And it really did happen. When when did the drum circle? 
happened? Oh, gosh. Well, the drum circle didn't start till, I don't know, probably about 17 years ago. It was the year of the great ball of fire <laughs> that... Uh, it was a power surge, I guess, from the station up on 133, and it it blew out all the electrical power south of the railroad tracks. And there was this big fireball that traveled along an electrical wire uh, across, um, was it 7th Street, uh, from the from the park across the street. And I was standing right under it, and it was like... It was like a a dragon breathing fire. It was just amazing. It, it made a loud sound, you know, a whoosh, and you could feel the energy. It wasn't the, the heat that you could feel, but the energy and the sound. I mean, it was just jaw-dropping, and it, it blew the power out like 15 minutes after the fair started, and uh, I was scheduled to be facilitating some drum circles on Saturday and Sunday uh, in the Oasis in the kids area. And Thomas, who was the director of the Arts Council at that time, um, said, go home and get your drums. And hmm. and so since I live so close to the park, that was done. And within about 20 minutes of the power going out, um, we had a drum circle of about 80 people going. So that was the beginning of the drum circle. And that was, um, like I say, about 17 years ago. And I always thought of it as the fireball commemorative drum circle. <laughs> well, where did, where did 80 drums come from? Oh, I had I had a lot of stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah, like I said, I've been play. I've been a percussionist since I was twelve years old, and I've gathered up instruments all over the world. But I also um, had started in '98. I started facilitating drum circles um, in schools and in community events and with special needs populations. And so I had acquired um, much more equipment to supply people with. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Immigrant Stories program. I'm your host, Walter Gallagher, and my interview today is with Lori Loeb. She's describing the genesis of the drum circle at Mountain Fair. What brought you to that drum circle idea? Um, my mother, I moved my mother out here. She had severe dementia, and um, after my father passed away, uh, I brought her out here, and she was in what's now Heritage Park. Um, it was a privately owned facility at the time, and I went soon after she came out, um, I went to see, uh, I went. I visited her. I mean, I was out there every day, and I saw that the programming for the residents was really abysmal. I mean, there, there wasn't much going on mm. for them, and and I had been acquainted with um, the therapeutic aspects of rhythm and and drumming. In fact, when I was still in middle school, I was doing volunteer work in in hospitals. I had been interested in, in drum circles, and so um, I thought, you know, that'd be a really neat thing. And I didn't really know much about how to do that. So I started, you know, studying up, and um, and I designed a, a prototype program for Heritage Park. 
And before I even started conducting it, um, Mountain Valley Developmental Services contacted me, said that they heard what I was doing, and they wanted they wanted to get in on it too. And so I, you know, fudged my way <laughs> through, um, you know, on a volunteer basis. And that summer, I, I knew about tr- the trainings that were offered. There was a week-long training that I really, really wanted to go to by the granddaddy of drum circles. And um, I managed to get a scholarship from the Arts Council <laughs> to, to go get trained. And, uh, and, so, and I was wondering, you know, when I came back from the training, you know, how, how am I going to practice this stuff? And then it was that the following summer that the fireball started the first drum circle. So it was just perfect. The fireball. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. and the drum circle has become um, quite a, a, a phenomena in itself. Um, I hear from people all the time, oh, you know, it's my favorite part of the fair, or I come for the drum circle, but then I leave for the rest of the weekend. And it's it's just such a wonderful way to bring people together in one pulse to set the tone of of harmony within diversity. That was Lori Loeb, a valley treasure whose name is synonymous with giving, caring, and commitment. If you'd like to hear the rest of my interview with Lori, please go to our website, kdnk.org. You can click on the public affairs at the top of the page and scroll down to Immigrant Stories. It's there that you'll find today's interview and its second half. Thanks to all of you for listening, and a special thanks to Lori Loeb for all that you've given. Our valley is a richer and more vibrant place because of you.